reached our cruising altitude, it's time for the flyover. Welcome back to Flyover View, a member of the Heartland Pod family of podcasts, and a look at Heartland news from 30,000 feet. From the Gateway Arch to the Rocky Mountains, I'm your host, Kevin Smith. I want to thank you for joining me today as we dive into the stories most impactful to you. Folks, I've got a bit of a cold today, but I'm drinking some hot tea, trying to get the throat loosened up for you. Hopefully, we have a good show. Let's begin. Oklahoma politics are hurting businesses. In a bid to win the coveted billion-dollar bid for Panasonic's electric vehicle battery plant, Oklahoma has come up short. Despite the Sooner State offering up to $700 million in rebates, the company chose to instead set up shop in Kansas. It's not the only business to go elsewhere. Tesla picked Austin, Texas over Tulsa for their factory in 2020. House Minority Leader Emily Virgin, a Democrat out of Norman, points to state laws that are scaring businesses away. We hope that this is a wake-up call for Oklahoma Republicans, she says. We hope it's a wake-up call for the governor, that no matter how many tax cuts you provide, no matter how many tax credits you provide, you can't get these businesses to come here if you have a culture of bigotry and hate. CNBC revealed its 2022 rankings of the America's top states for businesses. Oklahoma ranked 38th overall, but came in second place under the category cost of doing business. The methodology to calculate the rankings included a number of factors that also included life, health, and inclusion, business friendliness, and education. The White House released a statement on Wednesday on the Panasonic deal that reads, in part, Today's announcement that Panasonic Energy plans to invest $4 billion and create 4,000 jobs in a lithium-ion battery factory in DeSoto, Kansas, is the latest example that the Biden-Harris economic strategy to bring manufacturing jobs back home is working. Misty Bradley, state chair of the Oklahoma Parent Legislative Action Committee, a public school advocacy group, asserts that the state needs to invest more in its people to attract businesses and land jobs. According to Bradley, Oklahoma ranks 46th in funding for K-12 schools, and Kansas ranks 28th. Honestly, I'd like to see us, you know, take care of our people and stop the corporate welfare. She wants to see more dollars going into schools and not set aside for big business. Oklahoma University Tulsa professor Rodger Randall, who also served as Tulsa's mayor and state legislator, said quality of life for employees is key. Companies, before they locate in a place, they want to know that that place is a spot where they can recruit workers, he explains. Recruiting high-caliber employees means looking at diverse candidates. And Randall said... They need to feel welcomed by the whole state. If state policies create an image of Oklahoma that's unwelcome, it doesn't matter how much we do in Tulsa or Oklahoma City to attract people. The state's image will scare them away. And for what will happen to all the money that was set aside for Panasonic? According to sources in the Capitol, it would carry over into next year's budget, unless lawmakers are to pull it back during a special session. Folks, this is indicative of a trend I believe will become all the more common in the near future, especially in the wake of the rollback on women's reproductive rights and the potential loss of other rights under the 14th. These states are going to face a reckoning. Companies, especially companies with money to throw around, want a diverse group of employees. Underfunded schools are not exciting prospects for quality employees. Women already employed with the company aren't going to want to move to a state that treats them as second-class citizens just to help open the doors of the company. Members of the LGBT plus community may take a pass on states that could one day tell them that they can't enter into a civic marriage. Poor parental leave options, lack of health care access, etc., etc. Hopefully, Republicans sit up, take a look around, and notice that their draconian laws aren't helping anyone, themselves included. Missouri's top mental health official balked at new homeless law. The governor signed it anyway. 
In May, a letter obtained by the Post-Dispatch, the Missouri Department of Mental Health Director Valerie Hoon told Governor's Budget Office that a new law affecting the homeless will have negative effects on the people living in the streets and could exacerbate the problems rather than fix them. Hoon writes, When people experiencing homelessness have criminal justice histories, it's difficult to find housing. Parson, who announced Hoon as his selection as director in December, signed the Republican-backed measure into law in June, despite her protests. The law, which goes into effect January 1st, 2023, makes it illegal to sleep on state-owned land, such as under highway overpasses and bridges. After one warning, anyone found illegally camping on state-owned land could face a $750 fine or a Class C misdemeanor charge, punishable by up to 15 days in prison. The law also authorizes the state attorney general to sue cities that don't enforce the ban. It further penalizes cities with rates of homelessness higher than the state average by taking away state funding for unhoused services. The measure also bars cities and organizations from using state and federal grants to build permanent housing for the unsheltered. Rather, that money must be directed to build temporary camps. People wanting to stay at temporary camps must submit mental health and substance abuse evaluations, which contradicts the currently federally backed Housing First model, which says no one should have to meet requirements to seek shelter. Hewn has a long history as an administrator in state government, having worked at the Office of Administration, the Governor's Budget Office, the Department of Social Services, and the Department of Health and Senior Services. She joined the DMH as chief of its Division of Developmental Disabilities in 2014 and was named the department's deputy director in 2020. Her concerns echo a long list of opponents to the legislation. In her letter, Hewn said the focus on short-term housing fails to provide an adequate level of support for people seeking to have stability in their housing. Private landlords statewide may choose not to lease a person's experiencing homelessness for a variety of reasons, such as no rental history, no credit or poor credit, or criminal histories. Stable housing is a key component of successful recovery. The new law also puts limits on how the state can use funding for homelessness programs. In a separate letter from the staff of the Missouri Housing Development Commission, of which Parson is a member, officials also raised concerns about the new law, saying it will heavily impact the state's urban areas. The commission letter dated May 23rd also said the law could limit the uses of state and federal funding in building permanent housing for the homeless. Many activities in the bill are not currently funded through existing programs and are too vague to make a determination of eligibility, the MHDS documents note. Parsons' signature on the legislation marked the second law he signed over the objections of his agency directors. Listeners will recall that last week I highlighted the objective success that Houston, Texas was having by backing the Housing First model put forth by the federal government. More and more, Governor Parson appears to be a rubber stamp for Republicans in this state, with little interest in listening to experts or taking time to recognize successes opposite of his party's attempt at an easy fix. Does he even want this job? He certainly doesn't seem to take it seriously. Folks, before we hit the break, I want to inform you that we're taking a brief layover with candidate Bethany Mann. Bethany is a Democratic candidate for Missouri's 3rd Congressional District. Bethany, I want to welcome you to the flyover view today. How are you doing? Great. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, to start, you're running in a district. Hell, you're running in a state where running for office isn't easy. What made you decide to run for the 3rd? 
Well, you know, I worked as Katie Geppert's assistant campaign manager in 2018. She ran against Blaine Lukemeyer. And as we traveled through Missouri, through Missouri's third, I learned firsthand through people's stories that their representatives were, that hit, that their representative was not interested or invested in solving some of the big problems that impact working families, like education, workers' rights, rising healthcare costs. Blaine's a very wealthy, wealthy banker who's beholden to his donors and party leaders, and he will lie to his constituents without scruples. I feel like Missouri lacks representative leadership and electing the same demographic to Congress leads to disastrous results for working families, especially women in those in marginalized communities. But what pushed me over the edge was watching Blaine's response or lack thereof to the COVID pandemic. He had all the information on how COVID would impact his constituents. He knew the seriousness and the severity, and he also knew how many people were projected to die, and he did nothing. In fact, he went on a big publicly televised town hall and he told his constituents to not worry about it, to just go to the lake. Those were his words, go to the lake. He repeated the lie that the UV light would kill the virus because that's what his donors told him to say to keep their stock prices up. He lied, he knew that he lied and he lied for money and people died as the result. So I saw that we didn't really have any candidates who could, who could really go after his, his record and credibility. So I decided to enter the race then. You know, I wish that was a rarity in Missouri, but we had way too many Republican uh, legislators like Blaine Luktemeyer and people in power who just did not take the pandemic seriously. Well, they were paid to not. They knew better. Money, right. money talk. And what is it about your background that makes you confident that you can represent the Missouri's third? What do you bring to the table for its constituency? Sure. Uh, well, I've lived an interesting life with a lot of practical experience. I was homeschooled. I grew up in Forestell. I got a GED and worked retail in a big pharmacy for 11 years. I went to community college and then I earned a degree from the, in chemistry from the University of Illinois over in Springfield. And I started my career um, as an intern with the EPA in Region 5, and I tested water, soil, and air samples for heavy metal contamination. After that, I learned how to use all sorts of chemistry equipment, and I've spent time solving big chemistry problems and te um, using technology in grain elevators, ethanol labs, oil crushing facilities, and corn processors. I kind of make the joke that my life is a giant episode of how it's made. <laughs> <laughs> I've spent time in places where they make pet food and potato chips and chicken nuggets. Um, oh, wow. pink, slime, pink slime is a thing. <laughs> now I specialize in helping companies comply and learn about regulatory requirements. So I spend time in big regulatory labs and I educate and provide R&D for energy labs, pharmaceutical companies and chemical manufacturers. So basically my background is one of a problem solver. I like to, I like to take big complex issues and find solutions. And I do this by listening and learning from the people around me. And Missouri has some complex issues that require their representatives to listen, learn, and act. I believe that I'm the best man for the job. <laughs> um, I'm also the only one in this race that can um, catch some criminal charges for accessing health care. So in regards to social issues, I have some skin in the game. I'm also a mom, so I can speak to kitchen table issues also. Wow. And that uh, background of the sciences is truly important, especially in the Midwest where climate change is really beginning to take its toll. Yes. And on your website, you say that your goal is to make the third district and Missouri a state leader when it comes to important issues that build the middle class and strengthen Missouri families. So what does that mean to you and your potential constituents? And what that means is I'm running to make a difference and improve the lives of working families from everyone from farmers to first responders to teachers and healthcare workers, and really anyone who feels left out. I believe in bringing people together, and I aim 
to do just that. Building on that, lots of folks may not look at every issue when they vote. So for you, what is the one major issue that you will tackle if you're elected? Sure. That's hard to narrow down. My, my focus yeah. <laughs> is on education, infrastructure, and fixing our broken healthcare system. But if I were to pick just one, I would say education. And the reason for that is our state is currently tailing behind, trailing behind in many areas. We rank, rank four, 49th in school funding, 50th in teacher pay, and our students deserve a quality education and support from pre-K to secondary schooling. Our system's overwhelmed by a lack of resources, and we're especially lacking in science and technology access and education. Missouri has the resources to expand educational spending, but those in power reallocate that funding for pet projects, leaving our students, educators, and the system to fend for itself. It's time for full and equal funding for our educational system to ensure that every student has the best opportunity to succeed. Well, and speaking as a husband of a teacher, I definitely love to hear that. So how can folks find you if they want to help you out? Um, sure. So you can go to my website. That's Bethany Mann for Congress. So it's M-A-N-N-F-O-R Congress.com. You can find me on, on the Twitterverse at Mann, M-A-N-N for the number four Congress. I'm also on Facebook and there's a Facebook group for my supporters and volunteers. So if you want to learn more about my policies, please go to my website. Uh, my Act Blue page is also there. If anybody feels inspired and wants to donate, we're, we're kind of close to the primary. So we're buying things like yards signs and flyers and about to pay some volunteers to go out canvassing. So every donation really means a lot, especially to a, you know, a self-funded grassroots campaign like mine. And are there any upcoming events that you want to highlight? Ooh, yeah, I've got quite a bit. It's a Friday night. I'll be down in the Ozarks talking to to some women there. I'll be down in Eldon. On Saturday, I'll be at the ham breakfast at the Boone County State Fair. I'll be spending some time out out at the State Fair talking to voters there um, later in the afternoon. On Sunday um, at two, I'll be at the Marys County's Marys County Missouri Democrat Committee's ham and bean dinner. But in Fulton on Sunday at 4 p.m., I'm really excited about this one. We've got a reproductive rights rally that was organized by me, my awesome team of volunteers led by April, and then Jessica Slitz, who's running for House District 49. So there'll be a short march up to the Callaway County Courthouse, and we're expecting a big crowd. So I'm excited about that. On Monday night, I'm going to have a Zoom town hall meeting. Details for that will be up on the social soon. And then on Tuesday, if you have some time on Tuesday, come out and see us at the Gasconade County um, Parade. I'll be marching with a growing group of Gasconade Dems led by Jamie uh, Mercer out there. So I'm excited for that. Awesome. Well, Bethany, I want to thank you for taking the time to join me on the flyover view and best of luck out there. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and thank you for the important work that you do. Hey there, folks. I hope you're enjoying the show. I want to remind you that we are a 100% listener-supported family of podcasts, all under the umbrella of the Heartland Pod. You can catch our flagship show, The Heartland Pod, on Mondays every week with Adam Summer, where he delivers an opening statement before being joined by Sean Diller and Rachel Parker for Talking Politics. You can also join numerous members of our crew on most Tuesdays and Thursdays for Let's Have a Chat, featuring interviews with folks of interest from around the Midwest. On Wednesdays, the focus shifts to a rotating cast of special reports like The Delta with Nick Nicholas and Christina Linky and High Country, Sean Diller's Western political updates. Learn more at heartlandpod.com and don't forget for full access to the last call episodes and the Heartland News blog, sign up on Patreon as a pod head today. And now, the lightning round. Lightning round. Dark money Republicans for Roberts. 
Investigative reporting from KSDK St. Louis finds that United States Representative Cory Bush, who faces the voters for the first time as an incumbent, has some powerful forces to overcome from former Representative Lacey Clay's revenge and Republican dark money groups who are both working behind the scenes to block her re-election bid. In a July 4th tweet, Clay told his supporters that he had donated to the Yashad PAC, which is independently supporting Steve Roberts in his effort to defeat Cory Bush in the Mo One. According to the paperwork filed with the Federal Elections Commission, someone named Steve Zimish founded the Dark Money Group to support the campaign for Steve Roberts in December of last year. Roberts, a state senator, wouldn't officially launch his committee to run for Congress for another four months. The phone number listed in the Yashad PAC's paperwork were linked to a business owned by Paul Zimich a longtime Republican operative who lives in Clayton. Zimish isn't the only Republican working to elect Roberts, though. Another dark money group, the nonprofit 501c4 group Progressives for Missouri, lists GOP tax attorney Mark Milton in its Articles of Incorporation filed with the state. Biden announces new actions on climate change. President Joe Biden on Wednesday announced modest new steps to combat climate change and promised more robust action to come, saying this is an emergency, and I will look at it that way. Let me be clear. Climate change is an emergency. He pledged to use his power as president to turn these words into formal official government actions through the appropriate proclamations, executive orders, and regulatory power that a president possesses. When it comes to climate change, he adds, I will not take no for an answer. Executive actions announced Wednesday will bolster the domestic offshore wind industry in the Gulf of Mexico and Southeast, as well as spend $2.3 billion to help communities cope with soaring temperatures through programs administered by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, Department of Health and Human Services, and other agencies. These words come as historic temperatures bake Europe and the United States. Wildfires rage in Spain and France and Britain on Tuesday shattered records for the highest temperature ever registered. At least 100 million Americans face heat advisories in the next few days as cities around the United States sweat through more intense and longer-lasting heat waves that scientists blame on global warming. Republicans keep gerrymandered maps in Ohio after they were struck down by the court. The Ohio Supreme Court recently struck down the maps for the state's 15 congressional districts, saying that they were so distorted in favor of Republicans that they violated the state constitution. It was the seventh time this year that the court has struck down either a congressional or state legislative map this year. Despite these rulings, Republicans have maneuvered to keep both the congressional and state legislative maps in place for this fall's election. It has set up an extraordinary circumstance in Ohio. Voters will cast ballots for federal and state representatives representation this fall in districts that are unconstitutional. Significantly, there's no meaningful stick to force Ohio Republicans to draw constitutional maps. Under a constitutional amendment, the Ohio Supreme Court can only send lawmakers back to the drawing board, not draw a map for it. And the only punishment lawmakers face to passing a map along partisan lines is that it won't be in effect for an entire decade, a consequence Republican lawmakers are clearly unfazed by. Kathleen Terser, the executive director of the Ohio Chapter of Common Cause, a government watchdog group, and one of the most knowledgeable people about redistricting in her state, hopes to see a push to create an independent redistricting commission in Ohio, something that the Chief Justice of the Ohio Supreme Court, the critical swing vote in all the redistricting cases, has encouraged. She says... It certainly hasn't worked the way it should. The map makers are just drunk on power. And honestly, you need to take away the keys from the drunks. Arkansas and Nebraska refuse critical federal rental assistance. 
In May of 2021, the Treasury Department announced that states would get another $21.6 billion in federal rental assistance. It was the second wave of money made possible by the American Rescue Plan, intended to cover the back rent tenants owe after suffering financial hardship during the pandemic. Two states, however, Arkansas and Nebraska, outright refused to accept the second round of money, leaving struggling renters without any help to stay housed. Both Republican governors said that help wasn't necessary in their states, but their statements stood in sharp contrast to the conditions on the ground. Arkansas and Nebraska residents were still struggling to make rent and continue to do so, with no more federal help on the horizon. In the absence of rental assistance, evictions have been shooting up in Arkansas. By May, they had reached the highest rate in five years. As of June 30th, there were 3,832 unlawful detainer evictions filed in the state this year, which doesn't account for evictions filed under the state's criminal statute or in small claims court. The need for rental assistance is just as high in Nebraska. The requests for help and the amount of funds that are still being distributed at a level that's equal or potentially higher than what was seen during the peak of the pandemic. U.S. death toll from drug overdoses is rising fast among black and indigenous people. Historic rises in drug overdose deaths are disproportionately affecting black and indigenous peoples in the United States. This is according to a new analysis from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that uses data from 25 states. It finds that fatal overdoses increased by 44% among black people in 2020 compared with the year prior. The jump in drug overdose deaths was almost as sharp for American Indian and Alaska Native people, groups that together saw a 39% increase over the previous year. The steep rise in deaths among black and indigenous people far outpaced what was seen among white people during the same time period. That group had a 22% year-over-year increase in drug overdoses in 2020. The disproportionate increase in overdose death rates among blacks and American Indian Alaska Native people may partly be due to health inequalities like unequal access to substance use treatment and treatment biases, says Deborah Howery, acting principal deputy director at the CDC. Altogether, more than 91,000 people died because of drug overdoses in 2020, a historic rise of 30% compared with the year before. And finally, folks, Betsy DeVoe says the Department of Education should not exist. Betsy DeVoe, the Secretary of Education under President Donald Trump, said over the weekend to a conservative group that the department she led should be abolished. DeVoe's comments come at a time of escalating culture war, led by conservatives targeting the teaching of social issues such as race, gender identity, sexual orientation, and the desire for parents to have more control over school curriculum. DeVoe, who was Secretary of Education from February 2017 through January 2021, championed charter schools. She also tried to turn over policies from former President Barack Obama's administration that she argued gave the federal government a role in education. Many of those policies were related to civil rights. In this podcaster's opinion, she was unqualified to lead the department then. She's unqualified to speak on it now. Well, that's all the time we have this week, folks. I want to thank you for joining us. If you have a story you feel that I should look into and possibly highlight on the show, please tweet me throughout the week at Kev in Midmo or the pod's parent account at Heartland Pod. This week's episode featured reporting and information from USA Today, KYUL, St. Louis Today, The Guardian, The Intercept, KSDK, and The Missouri Independent. Thanks for listening. Flyover View is a production of MidMap Media, LLC. Learn more at www.heartlandpod.com or at the Heartland Pod on Twitter. See you all next week.